following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. I didn't expect to see so many of you with the sun shining on a summer, summer holiday. And so, uh, yeah, it's great to be here together to worship God and to just uh, praise His name. And yeah, let's just uh, pray together now. Lord, I just ask that you'll speak through me, that you'll allow your words to speak into the hearts and minds of the people here, Lord, and just open up our hearts, open up our minds, and let us hear what you have to say to us today, Lord. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I heard a story of a lady who called her husband. And uh, when the husband answered, he was at work and he was having a really busy day. He said, hi, honey, uh, I'm having a really full-on day today and I don't have time to chat. She said, that's okay. I just have some good news and some bad news. And the husband said, okay, well, maybe just share with me the good news now and then we'll deal with the bad news when we get home. She said, well, okay, you'll be happy to know that the airbags in our new car work. (laughs) Uh, Maybe some of you experienced that. Um, today I'm speaking on John the Baptist, so you can be turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. John had some news to share with us and to share with the world, and thankfully it was all good news. It wasn't bad news. And you know, John was the forerunner leading up to preparing the way for the coming of the kingdom and for the coming of the king, Jesus. And you know, it's not that unusual to have a forerunner. Kings and queens always have forerunners that that go ahead of them to prepare the way. And in the past, the king and a queen, when they're heading to a city, the forerunner would go and prepare the route and make sure the route was passable and safe. And then a second job would be to to, uh, declare that the king and queen are coming, to make people aware so that they could also get prepared for the royalty as they arrived. And it was interesting, I kind of got on this track of searching Google, and I wanted to find out how much it takes to prepare for the President of the United States to arrive in a city. It was really fascinating, um, all that goes into that with the Secret Service. And ideally, the Secret Service shows up three months in advance in any city that he goes to, to start preparing for his arrival. And when the President uh, lands, they clear the airspace for 50 kilometers around the airport, And they plan the motorcade route explicitly. And then just before he arrives, they take bomb-sniffing dogs all along the route to make sure there's no bombs. They identify possible threats. They contact people who are on their threat list to let them know not to do anything. (laughs) And they notify the local hospitals that he's coming through just in case they have to get prepared for that. And they also fly in the backup Air Force One airplane, and it lands somewhere near the location where the president's going to be. And then they fly a C-17 transport plane with all of the motorcade on it everywhere he goes. And you realize that it takes thousands of people to prepare for the President of the United States to arrive wherever he's going. Isn't that crazy? And here's John the Baptist, sent by God all by himself. He was sent by God with a divine message, though, to prepare the way for the coming of the kingdom of God. And all four Gospels tell the story of John the Baptist. They each have slightly different perspectives as they tell that story. 
But today I wanted to focus in on Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. So let's read that together. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God could raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the, at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The message of John the Baptist was kind of threefold. He came to present the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And then he came to call for true godly repentance. And then he pointed the way to the work in the person of Jesus Christ. And so God chose John the Baptist to first of all talk about the coming of the kingdom of God. King, kingdom of heaven. He said the kingdom of heaven is near. And John he lived in the wilderness of Judea. Now, I'm from Colorado, and I think of the Rocky Mountains in America when I think of wilderness. And I think of the mountains and the, the bears and all that comes with the trees and all that. But John would have been in the wilderness of a desert in Judea. And he would have looked, this is not a commentary on you, Sam. He would have looked scruffy and dirty. <laughs> and at first glance, he would have looked like this random guy that maybe you don't want to have your kids around. You know what I mean? Again, not a commentary on you, Sam. <laughs> uh, it says his clothes were made of camel's hair, and he came eating locusts and wild honey. But God brought a message through this man, through this seemingly random man who was the cousin of Jesus that lived in the wilderness. God brought a message through this man. And God was obviously working through him because the people were drawn to him. The people were heading out to hear what he had to say. They were responding to his message and being baptized for repentance. But that twofold message, first calling people to repent, secondly, pointing people to the kingdom of heaven, which was near. And so not only was he pointing to the kingdom of heaven, but he was also pointing to the king who was to come, Jesus. And Jesus is the key here because Jesus gives us access to the kingdom of heaven. No one comes to the kingdom of heaven without going through Jesus. And so let's break down these two ideas, repentance and the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you hear kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, they're two in the same thing, really. 
Because the kingdom of heaven is only used in the book of Matthew. The rest of the New Testament refers to the kingdom as the kingdom of God. But think of it in the, in the same terms, kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, it's a way of describing the establishment of God's plans and His purposes here on earth. But not only here on earth, it's also God's eternal purposes in the kingdom of God in the spiritual realms. The kingdom of heaven encompasses all of the work of God. It encompasses the eternity that is in the kingdom where the throne of God is in the spiritual realm. And it encompasses what God is doing here with us. And we're part of that in Christ. It's an incredible thing to understand. And the Bible says that we actually receive eternal life when we enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you look at uh, John, Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says this. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but, the, but crossed over from death to life. Did you hear that? It's in the present tense. That whoever, whoever hears my word and believes in me has eternal life. We're not waiting for eternal life. Many Christians think that we're waiting for the end of this life in order to receive eternal life. But, but Jesus talks about eternal life in the present, that we somehow enter into eternal life now and into the future. And it's a beautiful thing. And so we coexist in these two kingdoms, really. We coexist in the kingdom of this world, which the Bible says Satan is the ruler of this kingdom of the world. And we have to coexist in it. And so often the kingdom of the world is filled with frustration and sorrow. And nothing lasts in this kingdom. All the things we accumulate in this life, we don't take with us. It doesn't last. Nothing is lasting in this life. But we have to exist in this kingdom of the world while we're in our physical bodies here and now. But at the same time, when you come to Christ, you're also in the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is filled with peace and joy, and eternal life. And it's the peace and joy that can be in you, even in the midst of the frustration and sorrow of being in the kingdom of this world. And so we coexist in these two kingdoms. And there's tension there kind of always with us. We know we get a taste of what's better and what's eternal, but we're not there yet because we have to exist also in the kingdom of this world. I love what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. He says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a dull mirror. You know, we can't see everything right now. We don't get answers to all of our questions right now. But when you come to know Jesus, you start to get a glimpse of what that eternity looks like. You get a glimpse of that kingdom. You start to see more fully, but yet you still don't see the whole picture. We get some insights with Jesus and his word but we don't get the full picture. That verse goes on to say, but there will be a day when we shall see him face to face. Kanohi kite kanohi. The Maori for face to face. In person, in flesh, together with Jesus. The day is coming when we will stand with Jesus and see him face to face. And all of our questions will be answered in that moment. But for now... Our vision is going to be a bit cloudy. We're not going to see all the ins and outs of what that eternity actually looks like, what the spiritual realm actually looks like. 
And so John wanted people to know that something special was happening here. Something extraordinary was about to happen. That the kingdom of heaven was coming near. And it was about to happen. But he also was calling people and pointing people to true repentance, to the nature of true repentance. The first words that Matthew records of John the Baptist is, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. John gets to the heart of repentance when he addresses the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he first calls them a brood of vipers. Because they were deceiving people just like the serpents, the serpent in the Garden of Eden deceived Adam and Eve. These Pharisees, they were deceiving people because they were not nearly as righteous as they were proclaiming to the people that they were. And John said, you need to repent and start to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So you have to look at it. What what is repentance then? Repentance is really this idea of heading in a new direction, that you're turning your back on sin and heading in a new direction. Now, the Greek word, the original language of the New Testament, describes it as as to change one's mind. But really, biblical godly repentance is much deeper than just changing your mind. It's changing your mind, and it's heading in a new direction, in a different direction. And so repentance is really the first step in preparing to come before God himself, to come into his presence. Because our sins, sins are these attitudes and these behaviors that, that hurt and weaken and break our relationship with God. And sin causes this separation between us and God. And many of us assume, I think, that our relationship to God is really just built on how good we are or how bad we are. Right? When I talk to people out in the world that have some concept of Christianity, I've got two friends that don't go to church, but they would claim to have some sense of spiritual Christianity. But they think God condemns them when they're bad and God likes them when they're good. That's kind of how they define Christianity. In fact, I think Christianity gives us mixed message to the world. But that's not, it's not what I'm saying with repentance. It's not biblical repentance. It's not saying that God only likes you when you're good and doesn't like you when you're bad. That's not what repentance is about, really. The message that Christianity seems to convey so often to the world, though, is that Christianity is all about being a good moral person. But that's wrong thinking. It's not, it doesn't define Christianity by being a good moral person. However, I think it is the message. If we surveyed the people of Auckland and, they, and you asked them what Christianity is about, I think they would say it's about being a good moral person if they know anything about it at all. But the message that that the world keeps hearing from the church is stop your sinning. You know, we condemn their sin before they can come to God. So you get this mixed message where, okay, I have to stop my sinning and do the things that God likes before I can actually come to God. That's kind of the picture, I think, that happens so often. But here's the thing. Christianity is not actually about morality at all. Christianity is not about morality. And we should stop as Christians expecting unbelievers and people that know nothing about Jesus Christ to live according to a Christian morality. Now, God wants us to be moral, but Christianity is, in essence, not about morality. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. Christianity is about Jesus. 
and people coming to Jesus because Jesus is the one that fixes our sin. We don't fix our sin. Repentance doesn't fix our sin. Jesus fixes our sin. And when you fully come to know and understand who Jesus is and what his word has to say, then you can come to fully start to understand and grasp your own sinfulness. And so true repentance, it's only, it can only come when you start to understand who Jesus is. Repentance in and of itself does not fix your sin. No matter how many times you confess your sin to the priest, it doesn't fix sin. Only Jesus does that. Jesus is the one that cleans out the cobwebs of your sin in your life. He's the one that brings a new perspective to how you view life as a whole. And the desire for repentance comes from a realization of who Jesus is. And so Christianity is not about being a good moral person. It's about coming to know Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the apostle Paul writes again and he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. It leaves no regrets. I couldn't help but remember that uh, picture of the guy that gets the big tattoo, no regrets, you know. No regrets. Godly sorrow leads to God himself. You ever notice how sin, sin leaves regrets? Godly sorrow leaves no regrets. You won't ever regret coming to know Jesus Christ. Notice the consequences of a lack of true repentance that John talks about in verse 10, where he says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. To whom is he speaking there? Well, first of all, he's speaking specifically to the Pharisees and Sadducees who thought themselves so righteous that they were safe that they were safe before any judgment that God might bring. They thought everyone else needed to repent, but they didn't need to repent. They were children of Abraham. They were safe. And John's pointing out just the opposite to them. He says, you must produce fruit, and if you don't, the ax is at the base of the tree, and it's getting ready to be cut down. But it's also a warning to us. And then you get to verse 12, where it says, his winnowing fork, the winnowing fork of Jesus is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, a winnowing fork, we probably don't use one of those in our normal life anymore. The winnowing fork, I think of it kind of like a pitchfork where you're winnowing out the chaff and the weeds and you're separating out the the kernel of wheat from the rest of the plant. That's really what they did with the winnowing fork. We have harvesters that do that today. But the winnowing fork is that idea of separating out the kernel of wheat from all the other stuff of the, the plant, the chaff, or, and the weeds, really. And so he's using this winnowing fork to separate out the wheat and the weeds and the chaff. And this is a reference, really, to the judgment day of Jesus. But the thing that sometimes is, sometimes is overlooked is that the winnowing is actually happening now. The winnowing doesn't take place on judgment day. It takes place now. On judgment day, the coming of Jesus, he will gather in all the wheat, 
But the separating is happening now. The winnowing is happening now in the sense. And it sounds ominous and it sounds scary. It sounds, you know, people's minds go to the end times and the Armageddon and all this stuff. But actually, if you look closer at it, the winnowing is, is simply happening now when people choose to accept or reject Jesus. The separating started upon the arrival of the kingdom of heaven when Jesus arrived. And it's happened every day since. Because every day people are accepting or denying Jesus Christ. We're not waiting until someday in the future when Jesus will separate us out because the separating will be done on judgment day. The winnowing is taking place right now. Separating out those who believe and those who do not believe. And so John the Baptist is calling people to repent because the winnowing was beginning. And so John's whole message is really pointing people to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So John tells us four things about Jesus here. He says, one, Jesus is more powerful than he is. He says that he himself, John, was not even worthy to take off the sandals of Jesus. And that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus will baptize us with fire. Now, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail about those two statements, that Jesus will baptize us with, with uh, the Holy Spirit and with fire. They could be sermons in and of themselves, and I would let Reuben preach that for you. <laughs> but John baptized with water. I just want to say a few things. John baptized with water, but Jesus' baptism is done in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John says, that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ is what actually comes in and changes our lives and changes our perspective and changes our heart. And life change is not solely up to us alone because the Spirit of God comes in and convinces us and moves us towards that life change that Jesus wants in our lives. And our power really comes in when we decide to give up and to let God take over in our lives. To give up on our own thinking, to give up on our own sins, and allow the thinking of God to enter into our lives. When we give our lives over to Jesus and and His presence comes in, He changes our hearts. But then you have this term, the baptism of the fire. Baptism of fire. And I believe that John is really referencing here The work of throwing our sins in the fire. And Isaiah chapter 1 verse 25 has this prophetic message. He says, I will turn my hands against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all of your impurities. Now I understand that passage of scripture pretty well. Because before I became a minister in the church, a pastor, I was a metal worker. And I still play around in an engineering shop over in Penrose. And I do the welding and fabricating and building custom jobs. On, uh, on Mondays, my day off, I go to work. And uh, so I understand the metal processing pretty well, and I enjoy it. And this word dross is from the smeltering process of melting down the metal. And you get the big vat. You can imagine the big vat of red-hot iron being melted down. And the dross rises to the top. The impurities rise to the top. And someone scrapes those off and then you're left with just the pure iron, the pure metal, whatever kind of metal it might be. And so the dross rises to the top and is scraped off. 
That's the picture that the scripture has given us here. The baptism of the fire refers to the purifying process, that purifying process, and it refers back to the winnowing that's taking place. That Jesus is separating out those kernels of wheat from the chaff and the weeds. And so in a sense, Jesus baptizes us with the gift of the Holy Spirit when we come to know him as Savior and Lord. But he also then baptizes our sin with fire. And when you repent and turn to Jesus, his grace and his forgiveness comes into our hearts. But your sin and the condemnation and the, and the separation we have between God, that's all separated out and thrown out in the big heap of weeds. And Jesus will burn that up and it will be no more. Our sins are no more when we come to Christ on that final day. The key message from John here is Jesus. That Jesus is here and he's ushering in something amazing and something extraordinary called this kingdom of heaven. And we all can come into the kingdom of heaven through Jesus Christ. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He holds the key to the kingdom of heaven and the key to eternity. And he has opened up the gates to all who come to him, to all who turn to him. All of the people can come to him who turn to him. Maybe you're here today and you've never actually given your life over to Jesus. You've never come to that point where you've fully given your life to him. Maybe even you might think that you have, but you haven't. And you know in your heart that you haven't really, really given your life to him. Allow him to come in today. Today can be that day when you give your life over to him. Where you say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you in my life. Come in and take over. But I know for for some of you, it might be that you've been allowing that sin to kind of, kind of creep in and, and, and keep you from God and, and separate out your thinking. And the sin creates this feeling of separation with God. And maybe God feels like he's a million miles away from you today. Scripture tells us that God is not far from any one of us. And when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. That's that idea of repentance. Repentance has far less to do with turning away from our sins and far more to do with running to God and running to Jesus. So you're not worrying about your sin because you're running to Jesus. That's the concept. That's the, that's the idea. You're turning your back on, on all that stuff that's holding you back and causing separation, and you're, and you're running to Jesus. I want you to run to Jesus today. I want you to truly accept him and come to know him and to understand his word. You can draw near to God today. One thing is clear, and that is that Jesus, Jesus always welcomes you home again. Amen? Amen. Will you stand with me and pray? Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for all that you've given to us and how you provide for us in this life. Thank you for the sunshine and the opportunity to gather together. But Lord, I know that we're all in different places and we're all in different spaces of, of thinking and life and pressures. And 
Lord, I just pray that today, right now, people will, will set aside the kingdom of this world and, and just reflect on and come into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I don't know where people are at today, but I just pray that they will just be open to hearing from you and your spirit today and let your spirit convict them or guide them or lead them back to you. Father, I thank you that you're never far from any one of us, and I thank you that you've promised that you'll draw near to us when we call out to you. Lord, today I pray that people will call out to you, that each one in their hearts will call out to you today, Lord, and just let you and your presence be a part of us. Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.